All right, let's see if I can get through this intro. <laughs> Here we go. All right, here we go. Ba, 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 ba. Welcome back, Creative Beasts. This is Random Badassery, the podcast where we ask, what is creativity, how does it work, and how can we use it? This is a new episode for us, or I shouldn't say a new episode style. It is an old episode style that's kind of come back in a way. Um, for those of you who have been around, our normal episodes are studies in a particular artist, whether it is a director, a writer, a visual artist, whatever we see for that month that we want to st- we, that we want to study. And this episode is more focused on this is our middle of the month episode is more focused on what Lamb and I are doing creatively, what's inspiring us, tools that we're using for our creativity, anything that we find useful to share with you guys. So uh, hopefully you'll find some value in these. My name is Chad Hall and my co-host is Lam Wen. Hello everybody, how's it going? I want to do a quip, uh, quick, quip. I want to do a quick couple shout-outs. Um, not specific shout-outs to people because I don't have that information. But I was just looking at our stats, and there are people in places other than uh, California listening to us, which is kind of awesome. I just kind of assumed that everybody around us were the only ones listening. So hello to everybody in Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, and Oregon. Hello oh, wow. to nice. 136 people in England. Nice. Um Hello to people in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany. Hello to New South Wales in Australia. And hello to British Columbia and Ontario in Canada. There's a lot more, but those are the big ones. And to everybody else, there's a huge category in here that is just listed to me. It's actually our second largest category, other. So if you are other, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, did you want to start off the show with something? Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, you have the broad stroke on it and I have the, 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 the more specific, I suppose. Um, I've had a few people come up to me this week. Um, I went to a meeting for, uh, a political rally thing and I had random people come up to me and say, Hey, you know, we love the show. Um, so we've got a few locals who are now kind of going out of their way to, to remind us that, that they're in our corner and they're still listening to us as well. So that's been really inspiring. Um, our reader, our readership. Our, our listenership has, has steadily gone up, and I feel like that, that gives both Chad and I much more motivation um, to continue doing uh, what um, is reasonably painstaking work. I, I, at some point, I want to, to talk through um, the process that both Chad and I use to research our subjects because I think uh, it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty arduous in some sense, and it's made us experts in in some of these people in ways that we never imagined that we would be. So thank you for for inspiring us to continue doing this because I think it makes both Chad and I better artists, and in a lot of ways it makes us better art historians. So that's that's very very cool. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what the term is. I forgot what the term for it is, but there's a term for um, when you familiarize with something something uh, you see it more often. Um, you know, like when you buy a specific car, like if you buy a Prius, all of a sudden you see Prius everywhere. Um, there's a specific term for that. And I feel like that's one of the pleasures of doing, um, the study episodes is these artists, some of, some of which, um, we're hugely acquainted with already, like David Lynch, you and I were really over prepared for that episode already before (laughs) we even got into the study, just because we're huge David Lynch fans. Um, but like the, the last episode, our Bob Dylan episode, even though I've listened to Bob Dylan forever and I know you have too, 
the amount of research that went into that episode and the things that I learned and having listened to every song the man recorded, uh, I find myself seeing Bob Dylan in places that I didn't see him before making connections, which is uh, doing studies into artists. That's that's a value I think we don't talk about a lot on here, but it allows you to make connections, and connections are the heart of creativity. Um, when you can see how this thing and this thing fit together, now you, you've created something else. In um, philosophy, they call it uh, synthesis. They, they refer to it as synthesis. When a thesis and an antithesis meet, you have synthesis of a new idea. And that's kind of, the, that's what this is for me. And I, I, I feel like that's what you're saying too. Yeah, this, it's fascinating, um, especially the Dylan episode, because you, you're right. I mean, you and I have been, for some of our subjects, you know, with um, Ian McKellen, for example, I've been an Ian McKellen fan for a really long time. And given that he's um, in a visual medium, I find that it's easier to find his work versus a person like Bob Dylan, where his catalog is so dense and it spans such a long period of time that you forget how much of, of pop culture and how much of our, our culture in general uh, he's really he's really influenced. And so after the, the month's worth of research that we did into Bob Dylan, both as a person and as an, and, and as an artist, I started to see his stuff in all kinds of things that I hadn't noticed him in before. Um, a couple of books that have quotes pulled from him, um, a few ideas from TV shows and just, they're, they're just, his influence on pop culture is so, so vast, um, that it's tough to really understand that until you've done enough research into the man. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the synthesis is definitely something that, that's clearly seen over the span of five decades. And, um, I, I feel like it comes in fits and waves and especially with our, our current situation in this country, I feel like a lot of those sentiments come back. And so because of that, you can see it not just in the art um, that has been produced, but just in, in the culture of revolution or the culture of, 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 you know, disparity between, between the haves and the have-nots or whatever it may be. And it becomes much more clear that his influence is far beyond just the art itself, but much more in culture as well. I think in some ways it's hard to separate pop culture for uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even part of the 90s from Bob Dylan as a whole. I think he is just, he's within the DNA of pop culture. Sure. And, and pop culture in the grander sense, a lot of times we use the term pop culture to to mean just, uh, you know, the teen pop stars and the TV show that's that's hot this year or whatever. But pop culture in the in the grander sense of all culture that is popular, including literature and art and all of these other things that are popular culture, um, things that we share. And that's one of the great things that I I've, I think that we've done um, so far. If I'm going to pat us on the back for a moment. Um, we didn't do it on purpose, but we've done a good job of balancing larger artists, um, you know, like Bob Dylan, whose name are so synonymous that uh, almost everybody knows who they are, with people who maybe don't have the same name recognition. Um, a lot of people didn't know who Isaac Asimov was. And sure. so it's cool to have the opportunity to introduce people to artists that we respect, um, or maybe I should even use the word creators that we respect. In a weird kind of way, too, especially with a guy like Bob Dylan, um, you see how he defines alternative culture. Uh, you know, if you look at his influence on, on eighties culture or nineties culture, I mean, I definitely do think that there's, there's, there's an underlying influence that he has on, on, you know, the, the alternative movement or the grunge movement, for example. And so I feel like with Bob Dylan, because of how he defined himself in the music industry, uh, when he, when he first got his start, 
um, there's a certain sense of, of, of just counterculture that's inherently built into his creative process. And so I think because of that, anyone who followed him, um, anyone who had the guts to follow him and try something that was different from what was popular at the time is definitely influenced by the, not just the, 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 the art he created, but the choice to make the art that he did in the time that he did it. And I think the bravery that comes from a guy like Bob Dylan definitely makes it so that other generations beyond him become more and more brave, allow themselves to take more creative chances and, and feel like they can take those chances and still be accepted within some kind of subculture that then becomes the culture that we all understand. So I think that there's, there's, there's an amazing influence, not just in the art itself, but how the art's created. I think that that's one of the, one of the things that people don't um, take into account, you know, when they, when they get mad that an artist becomes um, big, um, there's this, you know, this whole sellout culture that people use all the time, which I just think is crap. Um, you know, when somebody works 30 years to, to achieve something and they achieve it, that's not selling out. That's achieving. Um, yeah. so, selling out is changing who you are to make money. So let's just make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan started doing Pepsi commercials in 1965, that would have been selling out. Uh, but one of the things that's really important about when an artist reaches that stage is it's not only advantageous to the artist it's advantageous to all of us because um, they go beyond that uh, minutiae of what they actually made which is exactly what you're saying here and they become a symbol sure Um, they become a motivating symbol for all of us and that makes it better not just for those of us who create but for all of us who want to do something you know, like if you want to start a business or whatever, you and you like Bob Dylan. I mean, let's go back to one of the biggest businessmen of our time, Steve Jobs. Bob Dylan was his idol. Steve sure. Jobs didn't play the guitar. He didn't sing songs. He made computers and he made iPhones and he made little boxes that go in our pocket that can hold every single Bob Dylan song. Um, or I should say he facilitated the business that made them. He didn't make anything. Um but he was influenced by Bob Dylan, and mm-hmm. that's 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 an amazing thing. And so, uh, I hope that if somebody's listening to the show for the first time, and maybe they're not a creator, that you can understand that just talking about these people and these things might help you in a way that you didn't expect. And since we're we didn't really plan on talking about this stuff, um, and we forgot last episode to do this, this seems like a good time to tell you our next study episode, our next artist that we're studying, which will be in two weeks from this episode. The beginning of the month, um, we will be doing Neil Gaiman, um, author and uh, most famously, well, maybe equally as famously, um, comic book writer. If you don't know who he is, um, look him up. Maybe uh, do a little research of your own before we get to the episode so that you can, in your head at least, participate in some way as well. Um, yeah, he's, he's particularly near and dear to my heart too. Neil Gaiman, um, for most of my young adult life was was the narrative story, storyteller um both from his books as well as from the sandman comics who, which i still hail as one of the the coolest things um that have come out of the the comic book spectrum to this day um and the work that he did with probably one of my my favorite artists of all time dave mckeon um so anybody who who is listening to this episode who doesn't know either of those guys you really are doing yourself a disservice by not diving into the works of both of those gentlemen and or the collaborations that they did through Sandman and various other things and if you're a part of the younger audience or you're a parent you might be familiar with Neil Gaiman through Coraline because he wrote Coraline 
Oh, that's um, right. So he's 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 also married to Amanda Palmer, the singer. Um, singer musician is probably a better way to say it. Um, so that's 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 who we're doing next, and I'm I'm actually excited. We, we're both already two weeks into research, so we're we're in we're we're in deep into Neil Gaiman's world right now. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Today <laughs> we're going to talk about Lamb and Me, and what's going on with our creativity, and uh, anything that we find useful that um, we've stumbled upon. And since we haven't done something like this. We may wander off into the weeds a lot in this episode. I'm, I'm fairly certain that we are. We're probably in the weeds already. <laughs> we'll just we'll just have to rely on each other to uh, reel the other one back. And so, for those who don't know, our original show um, before we changed to this creativity focused format, um, we focused more on the word random, and we talked about pretty much everything: what TV shows we were watching, um, books we were reading. What apps we were mad at. <laughs> uh, we went all over the place. And so what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to stay focused and rem- keep everything related to creativity as much as we can. So we're going to rely on each other for that. Forgive us if we go off into the weeds. As I said, we haven't done an episode like this in a while, so we may be a little rusty. So uh, let's get into it. Lamb. Yeah. What's... Uh... <laughs> What's 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 new in the creative world for you? Um, huh. So I, I, for anyone who who's who's been in my life for the last decade, um, I disappeared uh, pretty much off the face of the earth for about six or seven years of my life uh, with a with a job that I had where I was traveling more than half the year. Um, and in that span of time, I took a ton of photography. I, I did some some cool artistic things. It's it's funny how how creatively free you become when you go into a town and you know absolutely nobody. Um, and I feel like the last couple of weeks of my life, or I'm sorry, the last couple of months of my life, I've kind of been in the same situation uh, in that I'm working so much these days that I have very little time to hang out with friends. So I spend most of my day in the company of strangers. And so because of that, I, I find myself wanting to revert back to my, my roots as an artist, which is um, a photojournalist or a, a, a journaling person or, or, or just a, a, a journalist, uh, period. So lately I've been kind of obsessed with time lapses. Uh, so I've been doing time lapses of pretty much everything that happens throughout the course of my day, whether it's my work or whether I'm spending time on a golf course or I'm playing a piano or drawing something. I just time lapse the heck out of everything. So for me, there's a very, there's a very interesting sense of, of, of space and time that comes with a time lapse um, in the sense that you have no definitive sense of narrative in the same way that you would if you're just watching a video of time and it's in, 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 as it runs. So for me, I've been, I've been not just creating more time lapses, but I've also been watching a ton of time lapses too. So that's been, that's so far has been what, not necessarily what I'm, I'm doing as much as what's been inspiring me lately is the, the understanding of time in a different sense than what I'm used to. So for me, that's that's where I am. What what what's what's flowing in your creative world at the moment? Uh, well, before we do that, I want to tell everybody: if you're following us on Instagram, you may have had the privilege to see two of Lamb's time lapses within the last week. It was, I think, it's last week, right? The the yeah. airport one was within the week. Yeah, yeah, should be. If if not, go go to go to Instagram dot com forward slash random badassery, all one word, and look and check out uh, his time lapses. There's there's a mediocre one of me drawing the the Golden Gate Bridge, but the other two that are on there are lambs. And the airport one is um, 
really, I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, so go check it out. Um, as far as me, um, I've really just, I've been actually knee deep in the book, man. Um, probably nice. deeper than I've been in a very long time. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode that I had printed out the first 77 pages of the book and I was just going through with a red pen. I finished that today. So tomorrow is going in and typing all the changes. And then the day after that, we'll be writing all the scenes that are missing, all the holes, and then hopefully trudging forward. Um, it's uh, it's remarkably under control at this point. What what type of environment are you writing? And I'm always I'm always curious about this because I know that throughout the course of our conversations, um, not just uh, for the podcast but just in general, um, we've talked about writers in particular setting up very specific environments that inspire them to write a certain way. So I'm I'm curious as to two two questions actually. The first is. What is it about the book that you're focusing on at present? And the second is, what kind of environment do you feel best facilitates you being able to do that? Um, as far as what I'm focusing on right now, I've been, uh, I've had like this, I guess you would say this gap. Um, something wasn't working for me for a very long time. And I think it's what, what has been separating me from the book um, has been make it difficult, made it difficult because I, I knew something was off and I couldn't figure out what it was and I couldn't, something wasn't working. And for those of you who haven't written, um, anything as long as a novel, um, I had, I didn't know this before either. Um, it's, it's becomes particularly difficult to separate yourself, what you're doing, writing from the point of view of what a reader is going to see. And what I mean by that is you can, um, get into a scene and you can do really clever things that you really like and do some really good writing and be completely blind to the fact that somebody's going to be completely lost reading the scene or they're not going to know what that sentence means or that there's no storyline that's driving them forward to read the next scene. Um, I think that what I was feeling was that there was um, something missing. And when I went through, I think, what I realized is that that's what I had done. I had written some very clever pieces, but there wasn't a solid storyline. And this this novel, um, I'm not going to go into specifics on what it's about, but it has some particularly complex um, complex pieces to it. Some some there's some complex concepts. Uh, and if I don't make this story very clear, and I do not make it. Um, very basic in the skeletal framework, then all of the other stuff is, is the whole thing is just going to be a mess and it's going to be completely uncom- incomprehensible. So it has to have a strong spine so that I can, I can put all these complex concepts in. Otherwise I'm going to lose everybody. Um, so <laughs> what I've really been focusing on is, uh, this idea of, um, there's, there's a lady, uh, she's a writer and she writes a lot about writing as well. Um, her name is K.M. Wyland. I've never read any of her books. I don't even remember how I found her. Um, but she wrote some very interesting articles. I, I'll actually include a link to one of the ones that I just read recently. Um, she basically asks questions like, what is, what is driving your character in the scene? What, what does your character want? And what does your character need? 
And there's this complex idea here that it's, it's at the heart of any good written story. Um, your character wants something, and most of the time it's a lie. What they want is not good for them. And that's, that's, why, we're, that's why we're watching this story. Um, because if, if everything was good in their world, we wouldn't need to watch them. Because a story is about somebody changing or about sure. circumstances changing for that person. Um, and what they need is, is the truth of what they really need. You know, um, like, for example, one of the examples she uses is Thor. In, in the movie Thor, Thor wants to be king. What he needs is to learn humility and compassion. Mm-hmm. And so that the, the, the distance between those two things is what drives the, for, the reader forward, is um, finding out how those two things resolve. Sure. And, and so the, learning how to structure that and how to put that into a story, especially when you have so much of the story and so many pieces already done, you know, ideally you would have this, in an ideal world, when you wrote a novel, the first thing you would write is, this is my character's name, this is what he wants, and this is what he needs, and then write everything from there. But that's not the way novels work, at least not for me. Sure. They, they come in pieces, like um, a lot of like what um, David Lynch talked about in um, Catching the Big Fish. The idea of you find a fragment, and then you use that fragment as bait to get another, another fragment, and, and then you use those together as bait to get a bigger fragment. And when you when you have nothing but fragments sitting there, you have to learn to structure the spine, and sometimes you have to learn to throw away fragments, and that's really difficult. Yeah, I remember uh, in our podcast uh, what we did on Murakami, he said something. He's, he has a bunch of stuff that's very similar to that, how the story kind of tells itself through the characters. Um, so I think that, that the through line for any narrative is is defining that sense of, of of need for the character. Um, so, you know, anytime I've, anytime I've struggled with writing a story, it's because I don't really know what the character wants. And that's always, that's always something that now when I sit down to write anything, I really focus on trying to find out what the, 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 the driving motivation is behind, um, the character, because trying to figure out what the story is, is, is impossible unless you know what everybody wants first, you know? Right. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest flaws in any art form Movies, um, particularly story in storytelling, is assuming that your audience knows what you mean. Sure. Your job isn't to isn't to do that. Your job is to tell them what you mean. And sure. if you don't do that, you have failed. And, and and I think that um, sometimes we confuse that because we think, oh, they just don't get it. That's the yeah, excuse re- of somebody who doesn't want to do the work. I I remember I, there 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 are a few pieces um, um, of artwork out there, or movies in particular. I'm thinking of one movie in particular that I absolutely hated um, and everybody loved. And, and the reason I hated it was because there was no, there was no, the, the, what we're talking about, which is there was no motivation for the, the main character that was clear. And I thought it was really arrogant of the director to do that. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I think it's called The Thin Red Line. Um I hated that movie on so many levels because it was there was so much hubris in in the storytelling that I could not stomach it. Um, I mean, I watched it for the sake of watching it, and I know it won a bunch of awards and the director is critically acclaimed and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry I didn't come into this episode with the director's name. I didn't know we'd be talking about this, but that is a great <laughs> that is a stunning example of how artistic arrogance can lead to horrible, crappy storytelling. 
I haven't I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen parts of it um, mm-hmm. because it was around in the day when um, you could turn on the TV and find movies <laughs> part of the way through. It was a Malick sure. film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrence, Terrence Malick, Malick. That's right. Ugh, that's right. That's right. That's and right. And Ter- Terrence Malick is a terrific director, but oh, he is. I, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I didn't agree find with that. that. I didn't find that film the pieces that I saw that great. Um, but you know, that's kind of his thing too. He's, I mean, the, the tree of life is one of those movies where you're like, I have no idea what the hell just happened. There's some really beautiful parts, mm-hmm. but I don't know. You know, he, he Terrence Malick and I, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but I, I hold Terrence Malick in this weird echelon of, 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 of directors in particular that are extraordinarily overrated to me. Um, and I know we've talked about him before, but I, Terrence Malick to me is like a less shocky version of uh, Lars von Trier. I, I don't like either. <laughs> if you could see my computer right now, <laughs> I, I, I blanked on his name. I was literally just Googling the director of Antichrist because everything you said about Thin Red Line, in my head I was thinking about the movie Antichrist. I cannot stand anything that Lars von Trier has done. I completely it, agree with that. I I, I I made the horrible mistake of of Netflixing um, that both nymphomaniac nymphomaniac uh, ep, uh, I guess chapter part one, one and part chapter two. two yeah horrible I hated it I just hated there were everything parts, that Lars von Trier has ever done there were parts of the first one where I was like oh he finally made a movie that I'm going to be able to connect with and then it just oh it just gets so awful uh, we don't make it a habit of criticizing other artists um, people appreciate him. Um, sure. So I know that, like our friend Colin, he, uh, he, he really likes, um, Lars von Trier. Uh, sure. and it, it goes back to that thing where, you know, some people get something out of something that other people don't. I've tried, man. I've gone through like three of his movies and every time I'm like that, this is the last one. Um, but you know, whatever, maybe one day it's going to click with me. It's like when I read Don Quixote, everybody's like Don Quixote, maybe the greatest novel ever written. I was mm-hmm. so bored when I read that book. And um, sometimes it has to do with where you are when you approach something as well. Sure. Um, like, like I know a lot of people, I, I, the, the opposite example is true for me when it comes to Aronofsky, for example. A lot of people dislike Aronofsky, but I absolutely love Aronofsky. So that makes sense. Or totally. I've, I've seen people criticizing um, Interstellar by um, Christopher Nolan online, left and right. That's probably one of my favorite films ever made. So, you know, yeah. teach their own. Hey, there's some, there's some stuff that I know is crappy. Mm-hmm. That I like, not not Interstellar, but there's stuff that I actually think is. I'm like, oh, I understand why people can't stand this, but I love it. And we connect yeah. to things in different ways, and that's, I mean, that's what's kind of awesome. If we all like the same thing, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of movies, that's something I've been doing a lot recently. Is I've been watching one movie every night before I go to bed. Nice. And uh, it's 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 really interesting because I I think I've mentioned before that I I got rid of Netflix and I got rid of Hulu because um, I have Amazon Prime and I have HBO. Both of those um, HBO comes with my internet connection whether I want it or not, and Amazon Prime I use for the shipping so the video is just included. And between those and like the little things here and there from because I have a free basic cable with my internet too that I don't use. So I got um, some of the basic cable apps. I can plug into those. Between those three things, there's so many things to watch. I didn't need the other two. So I could save myself $20 a month or whatever. Um, But one of the programs or one of the channels that I've been looking at a lot is, besides HBO, is um, FX. FX has tons of movies 
on there. There's like 30 movies, 30, 40 movies every month. They change it every month. So I've found myself between that and HBO just going through and watching different movies. And most of them are movies that I normally would not watch. Um, like, for example, I probably never would have watched the most recent um, remake of 21 Jump Street. Um, I'm glad I did. It was really funny. 22 yeah. Jump Street, not as funny. Mm-hmm. But 21 Jump Street, really, really funny. Uh, so I, that's like a big theme for me right now that kind of fits into what we're talking about, too. This idea of, like, reducing your options. You know, we've talked a lot about minimalism before. But reducing your options and realizing that you can find something that's of value to you with a smaller subset of, of options. You don't need every movie in the world available to you to find a movie you're going to enjoy or even just a movie that has a part you're going to enjoy. I think the other side of that, too, is finding things that you 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 appreciated at some point in your life, but you appreciate much more now because you have a more evolved sensibility, I guess. So, yeah, definitely. Well, and plus, I feel like um, there's... This is actually really funny. Uh, for those who don't know me, which is most of you, when I was younger, I was very much a, a metalhead and uh, um, very much into, you know, like, uh, they're not metal, but, you know, like also into Guns N' Roses and uh, all that glam rock stuff, too, like the end of the era there. You know, that was my time, you know, that was my era of music at the time I was of age. Sure. And... Motley Crue was a big band, still a big band, I guess you could say. <laughs> they had lost their singer. You know, uh, Vince Neil had left, and they had this like replacement singer. And I remember that it was, I don't know if it just came to us at the right time. It wasn't a, a great album, maybe. But my friend Richard and I at the time were really into this album with the, with the new singer that everybody hated. But we really liked it. And I remember reading an interview with the guy. I can't remember his name. And this is so funny. But... This, what he said here has stuck with me my whole life. And he said, sometimes I listen to bad albums because there's just as much to learn from what somebody does wrong as what they do right. Mm, Interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about watching these random movies. Like, let me put this on. What's this? Okay, this movie called The Borrowers. It's made for kids. Not a great movie. But there's just certain things where you're like, Hugh Laurie is pretty awesome because I didn't recognize him for like five minutes and just these little small things and you're going to pull something out, but that's, you have to put that mindset on. You have to put on the mindset of the, the analyzer, the, the open, you have to be open to anything. I, lately too, I've been starting to realize the, the, the power of parody as well. Um, I, I was on a weird kick um, over the last couple of weeks of, of finding some of my old favorite movies. I, it all started with Spaceballs. And I, don't get me wrong, it was funny when, when, when I watched it in my you know teen years and early 20s, but I didn't appreciate how clever that movie really, really was until I had a chance to watch it lately. It is... It is, it is my favorite movie now on many levels, um, at least on a comedy uh, speaking from a comedy perspective, but Spaceballs is amazing, um, which dives me down a whole completely different rabbit hole of, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, um, Airplane, and a bunch, of, a host of those other movies that that have cemented themselves in my head as being some of the most clever movies ever written, um, not just the funniest but cleverest as well for their their satirical value and their parody. 
it's kind of like going back, which I've been doing a little bit of recently, and watching old Simpsons episodes, like season one, season two, where oh, they yeah. hadn't really dialed the show in the way that they have it now, but there's still that wit. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's, there's a, I was just watching an episode yesterday and they go, um, Bart's, it's, I think it's the first time you see Nelson the bully and Bart's, Bart's going to get his, his butt kicked by Nelson. So he goes to see Grandpa Simpson and Grandpa Simpson takes him to the, um, military supply gun store or whatever. Um, and while they're standing there, they're talking. If you look in the case down below, there's like little boxes of random things. And one of them says, Hitler's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and and then that that little thing is only one thing in that scene. But in later, that's what the Simpsons would be all about. Because there'd be like eight to ten of those things in every scene. Uh so I know exactly what you mean. You go it sometimes you you know, you watch things and you laugh, but then the second time you go through and you go, Now I'm paying attention. I, I find too that I'm also appreciating um, certain things that I, I didn't really get uh, when when other people were raving about them, and you'll you'll be happy to hear this. And Crystal, who is you know twenty feet from me, will be happy to hear this as well. But I'm finally coming around to Futurama. I finally am starting to get it a little bit, and <laughs> and and I'm starting to really appreciate how funny it actually is because of how deep the satire is. Um, and how, how, how strong the parody is in, in each and every episode. So I, 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 given my, given that I hadn't really watched it during the era in which it was most popular, I didn't really, I didn't really give it as much of a chance as I feel like I should have. And now that I've watched, the other night I, I just watched three episodes in a row, uh, from the very, very beginning, um, just to, just to give it a real chance, just to give it a real shot. And I, I finally now I'm starting to get why, why both you, Crystal, and pretty much every other reasonably intelligent person I know really likes that show. Um, Matt. Because there's, there's, yeah, exactly. You know, obsessed <laughs> with that show. I'm, I'm finally starting to get it. So I, I get where you guys are coming from now. <laughs> oh man, that show is just, you know, what the one thing about leaving Netflix and Hulu is I lost access to every single episode of Futurama at any time I want it, mm-hmm. as well as How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> And Star Trek The Next Generation. Three shows that I always seem to dip into when I don't have something specific to watch. Uh, I'll probably just end up buying all of those things on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I ended those, up doing that too as well. Yeah, Those are things that, that I'm never going to be like, why did I buy that? Those are things I'm going to carry with me my whole life. It's um, funny and those... that you say that because because I have I have movies like that 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 have gone from every device that I've had. Movies that I, I always will fall back on. Eternal Sunshine yeah, of a Spotless Mind. Yeah, I hear you. Dark Knight for that, me is one of them too. I love that movie for some reason. Amelie um, is one for me that I bought like six times in six different oh yeah. formats. Oh yeah, Amelie I have in VHS, uh, DVD, um, iTunes, <laughs> Blu-ray. I mean, I've got every version of that movie ever made. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And then those those are great things. I think that that's one of the things that, um, going back to this idea of minimalism that we've been talking a lot about recently, one of the things you start to realize when you start minimizing your access, your exposure to infinite options is you start realizing the things that matter. And for me, and I think it's the same for you, um, what you start to find is the more time you invest in those things that are important to you, um, the more you get out of them and the more, um, I don't know, you just blossom as a person by 
you know, watching the, your favorite movie once a month, it does something to you in a way that seeing a hundred new movies won't ever do. Sure. And it it's it's like uh, going back and rereading books. There's there's a value in focusing on those things that are important, or at least that we place importance on. Maybe is a better way to say it. Um, and I think we lose touch with that because of the ability to have anything we want at any time. You know, it's it. I've done it before, and I'm sure anybody listening here, at least at one point, has done it. Wanted to see a movie and been baffled by the fact that it wasn't on Netflix wasn't on Hulu. I couldn't watch it on Amazon and I couldn't even buy it on iTunes. My God. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's shocking to us that we can't have it within five minutes. Ten years ago, if they didn't have it in the video store, you'd have to wait, you know? <laughs> oh, I remember that. I remember that. When you'd, when you'd go to the new releases section at Blockbuster and they're just, all the DVDs are gone and you have to wait for three days before someone will bring it back. Or even worse, it's something that they they just don't even have. You know, it's like an older movie they don't have. Sure, yeah. You just had to remember and hope that one day you'd run across the ability to see that film. Oh, I remember <laughs> going to four different places to find a copy of the letterbox version of Schindler's List. I literally remember that journey. It took me it took me a full, like, 48 hours to find a DVD. And it was probably worth it. Oh, totally worth it. I still have that copy to this day. So, yeah, completely. I feel like that that's that's one of the things that I really appreciate about minimalism. Um, actually, I didn't intend to talk about this, but um, there's a podcast called The Minimalists, and obviously that's what they talk about all the time. Um, their show is kind of more of a question and answer based format. Um, they have a lot of like millions of listeners, so they have lots of questions. Um, but recently, I've been noticing that they're getting a lot of um, undue criticism. Uh, especially about their, they, you and I have mentioned actually their documentary before. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just called Minimalism. Um, and people, people are accusing them of things like, oh, minimalism is just white privilege. And all, all these just really mean things. Wow. And that's, that's like the nicest thing. You know, there's way meaner stuff that people said. Um, but that, that whole idea baffles me is that we're so entrenched in this idea of culture. That people who don't have money, that's, oh, that was one of the criticisms that somebody said. They said, want to try minimalism? Try being poor. And mm. <laughs> both of these guys grew up poor. So, I mean, they, they know. But I, I just think that we're so entrenched in this idea of having and owning and collecting and, and being able to have everything we want at all times that we are offended by the fact that somebody wouldn't want that. Sure. That somebody wouldn't want access to everything, and I wonder. I, I wonder what that is. I, I feel like, in some way, maybe it, it feels like a threat to our ability to have access to those things. And like, if oh, if everybody doesn't want this, then I might there not, might not be a market for it, and then I might lose it. I, I don't know. It's or maybe it's just the internet being assholes, like they can be. Well, I, th- I think it's the, the reverse of validation in the sense that if, if these two guys who are wildly popular and who seem to be living happy lives can live happy lives without the stuff that you think makes you happy, then it automatically devalues everything that that you, you consider to be the, the cornerstones of your happiness. And I actually kind of feel like that's the point. Um, that's the reason they're doing it is to, to strip away all of the things that think ma- that you think make you happy and 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 really drill down to the things that really do inspire you and that really do 
to give you a reason to, to smile every day. You know, if we, I remember, you know, a thread that you and I are on just with Carlos and, and, and John talking about how just the act of smiling every day or, or forcing yourself to smile changes the entire perception of the day. You know, it changes your, your reactions to people, changes people's reactions to you. Um, and I feel like, I feel like the, 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 the backlash that the minimalist guys are getting is, is just purely based on the fact that, that they're, they're valuing things that, or they're, they're taking away the value of things that people hold, assign so much value to. And so because of that, it feels like an affront to, to the lives that, that, that most people have chosen to live, um, you know, based on collecting things and owning things and having things. And, and using that as a way to, to determine whatever your status is in a, a given society or group of people. So definitely, I feel like, I feel like the backlash is, is inevitable. And I feel like it's, it's, it's validating to them in the sense that if they didn't get a backlash, then I think there'd be something wrong with what they were doing. And I think that that's something I want to say to everybody that's listening is, um, in no way are we ever telling you guys what you should or shouldn't do, what's right or what's wrong. Um, just because I don't have Hulu and Netflix doesn't mean that Lamb doesn't or that you shouldn't. Oh, I totally um, do. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but what one of the most important things, um, reeling this back to the focus of the show, because I did go on a tangent there, um, the reason minimalism is important to me and um, I think to you as well, Lamb, uh, is like you said, it's about focusing on the value. Um and that's important to your creativity because if you're not a happy person, how do you expect to create anything, to bring anything into the world? If you were full of bitterness, then you will be blind to – like what I was saying before about um, being blind to the flaws in the story that, I was, that I'm working on. If you are full of bitterness and anger, you're going to be blind to those things too. So you're not going to make things of value if you're lucky enough – to be able to break through that bitterness long enough to complete anything. Uh, and, and even though like we, you know, we said we didn't really like the thin red line and we didn't like, um, anything that Lars von Trier's made. I don't think that means that either of them should stop making things. Oh, of course uh, not. Yeah. That's not the intention at all. Of course. Every, everybody has a voice. Everybody has a, um, a right to express themselves and to make things. And going back to these guys, the minimalists, uh, so if people don't like hearing what they have to say, don't watch, don't listen. I, I feel like that there's, there's, there's this culture of where people have to um, plant a flag. Um, I have to plant this flag so that people know that I didn't like this. Sure. So, that, so in the future, when other people decide they don't like it, they'll know I was there first. And that's, that, that type of thinking is never going to make you happy and it's never going to make you a good artist. Um, if you ever notice that the very successful artists, um, from actors to musicians, uh, they hang out with other actors and musicians that maybe don't make the same kind of music or same kind of movies that they do. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like when you see Slash talking to, I don't know, like Lindsay Lohan. And that's, that's baffling because it seems like two different worlds. No, they're the same world. They're the world of people who make things. And they don't make fun of, you know, like, uh, they don't make fun of Jessica Simpson because they like to listen to ACDC. 
because they respect each other in and in the difficulty it is that it takes to number one to achieve the level that they've achieved, but to continually make things and put them to the public to put yourself out there in a way to be criticized. Um, because you, by being an artist, you are making yourself vulnerable in a way that most people are not willing to be. I like the the thing that you said though about. About well, I mean, you've said it a number of times on the podcast, but you know, art is inherently generous, um, and I think the extension of that is, I think, creativity is also inherently positive. And for me, for example, like I, the last couple of weeks, um, you know, I, I've, I've had my struggles and things have been difficult, but um, I'm in a wonderful relationship with an amazing person, and so because of that, I feel like there's there's a happiness that that comes from that that's that sense of just core positivity, and so. Because of that, I find myself compelled to to do certain things. Like now, for example, I hadn't thought about music, you know, or creating music of any kind for for quite some time, and I feel like a big part of the reason why that was was because I was really unhappy. Um, and so lately, for example, I can't I can't help but but play any piano I see. Um, I can't help but think about music and listen to music and want to watch movies and want to watch. Um, TV shows or read poems or, or books that I haven't read in a while. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that being happy inherently inspires you to to search for the creative things, to search for the beautiful things in the world, and then by extension makes you want to create beautiful things as well. So I, I definitely feel like there's a very strong thread of positivity that 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 in, in, in inspires creativity in a way that nothing else can. Yeah, there's that huge mythos of the tortured artist, right? That you have to be tortured to be an artist. Well, what people don't realize when we talk about the tortured artist is somebody may be suffering, they may be having problems, but in, in reality, who isn't? Who doesn't have something they have to overcome? Sure. Um, you know, somebody's somebody's pebble is somebody else's mountain, but it's still a mountain, even though you know it's small to somebody else. It's still their mountain. And when when people are creating, you know, you think of somebody like Vincent Van Gogh. We think of him probably as the epitome of the quote unquote tortured artist. Sure. I guarantee you that when the man was standing in a field, painting crows flying over um, the the fields, that he wasn't tortured. He wasn't in pain. That was probably his one moment of joy, was sure. when he was creating. The, the the art of creating was a solace for him, or or for people um, like. Um, I think his name was Augustine Burroughs, um, the running with scissors guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he had a great deal of pain in his childhood. And for him, creating and putting that into a story was a way out of that pain. Because he, he wasn't trying to wallow in it and stay in that pain. He was using art as a way to get out of it so that he could get to being happy. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, this is something that took me a long time to realize, but the the act of creation is ultimately about joy. Sure, it's 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 a pleasure to make things, and if it isn't, then you're faking something or you're unhappy. Um, so, <laughs> I guess my biggest creative advice would be get happy, <laughs> do yeah. something that makes you feel good. And 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 the other side of that too, for me, especially the last couple of weeks, you know, I've struggled with health things. Um, there have been some. Some darker things that have happened um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I won't get into specifics, but let's just say it's been it's been a difficult couple of months. Um, but I find that 
I can still remain inherently positive because I, 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 I'm trying to find just purely for the sake of maintaining my own sanity. I'm trying to find more creative things, not just to, to, to consume, but to, to produce as well. And, and so because of that, I feel despite how difficult things are, I still feel like I'm in, I'm in good spirits, which sounds crazy considering what's going on. Um, but I, you know, for example, when we're talking on this podcast, I feel inspired and, and, and creative and happy. And I, I feel like that's a, that's a great lesson, not just for, for, for other people, but for us as, you know, for us, the two of us, um, this is what we look forward to. And, and I think the act of talking about creativity and the act of, of, of creating the podcast itself is definitely something that inspires me to, to keep doing what I'm doing when it comes to, to searching for the avenues of happiness that I've found both in, in my personal life as well as in my creative life. And I think that that's something that for me took a long time to really piece together was this idea of creativity being something that makes my life better. Um, sure. You know, going going back to the emotions uh, uh, you were talking about is the when we when we focus on something we we make it grow we invest mm-hmm. in it. So if you're miserable and or there's uh, let's not even say if you're miserable if there's like you said bad things happening around you because you can't avoid that bad things will happen. You know, um, people will die, um, people will leave, um, jobs will be lost. Uh, Things like that are going to happen. We don't have control of those things. Storms will come. But if you focus on th- those things, you make them grow within you. Um, sure. they, they no longer become a circumstance, but now they become an identity that you, you're breeding within yourself. So by having something to create, something to work on, this is why creativity is so important to me. Because if, if bad things are happening in your life, but you're working on a novel, and your focus and your obsession is with that novel, or a film, or or song, or album. Your your focus is going to be on that thing. So those other things are going to roll off you more easily, um, because you've put your focus and your effort into this purpose, and and purpose will define you. And it, if even if you make something just for yourself, you're 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 giving yourself an opportunity an opportunity to to move through things in a way that. I wish I had known when I was 22 years old. Sure. Um, and and like, here's a question for you. Can you, ever, can you think of any time in your life, you and I both have suffered with anxiety. Can you think of ever think of a time in your life when you were totally creative and completely anxious at the same time? Wow. Um, not really. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Actually, I'm I'm trying to to, to rummage through my my the, the, the especially in the the most recent chunk of my life where anxiety was a big part of my daily routine and 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 and, and environment. I I definitely wasn't creative. I was the opposite of creative. I I I shunned creativity. I feel like I didn't listen to music for a solid three months of my life because I was so horribly stressed out, very very anxiety ridden. Anxiety requires so much focus. That I, I don't think that we could be creative because we've we've invested all of that energy into the anxiety. Um, I think you and I talked about this in in that text conversation you were mes- um, mentioning earlier. This idea of uh, me losing my train of thought right in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, folks. It happens. Uh, <laughs> Get it I back. No Get idea. it back. 
I have no <laughs> idea what I was just going to say. Um, focus is obviously not what I was what I was having right then. <laughs> it's got to be something anxiety related, creativity related, somewhere along those lines. Yeah, well, we'll just have to hope it comes back. But I do want to mention while we're still in this realm, though, is what you let in, the door that you open also affects a lot of things, too. Um, be aware, we're, we're always consuming things. We're always ingesting things at all times, whether we want to or not. There's always a song playing somewhere. There's always a commercial. There's always something that's coming at us. And one of those things for me was social media. And there's a lot a lot of anger um, in this country and specifically online right now um, in both directions um, politically. Actually, if you were just to, to be narrow-minded and say there are only two political directions, but in every direction you can imagine, there's just a lot of anger, a lot of vitriol, um, and a lot of despair for, um, for, both, both, um, for both ends of it. Um, and I think that that was just too much for me. Even just dipping in um, to see something, it, it was leaking in. And I, so I had to like start reducing that a little bit, you know, keep that out. But then when I started to really realize, when I started to think about social media, it wasn't really about the window in so much as the window out. Sure. Um, which Which means that uh, just as much as uh, I could say that there's there's a lot of angry people out there. I can say that I have anger myself because I'm no different than anyone else. And having a window to pour that out whenever I want is never a healthy thing. You know, when you're when when you're opening um, an app on your phone, it doesn't want to open. It only takes you about three seconds to yell at the developer on Twitter. <laughs> that's a window. That's a window you have to be to be a jerk. Um, and I didn't want that window anymore. Um, I'm not saying that I deleted my social media accounts, but what I did, and you know this, is I, I took them off my phone. Um, and it's about reclaiming my time as well, um, which in the long run is the message that I want to get out of it, is that all those times when I'm – I actually wrote a short thing about this. Um, I'll put a link to it below if you guys feel like reading it. It's about two-minute read. But basically it was it's this idea of you know when you're when you're waiting for a table in a restaurant, sure, you can pop in and look at some Instagram photos, you can check in on Twitter, you can check CNN, you can you know do whatever's go, whatever's available, or you could take those things off your phone, keep your phone in your pocket, and look around you. Listen, see the people around you, uh, write down what somebody's doing because maybe you'll use that for a story someday. Draw a picture of something that's in front of you. Take that time to just be there, to be present. Um, there's there's a never-ending source of inspiration for creative things around you at all times. I saw there's a guy who named Lee John Phillips. He's one of my current favorite artists. Um, he His grandfather died, and he took a pen and a notebook and he went in, and in, in his grandfather's backyard, there was a shed. Um, and in the shed were hundreds of tools and screws and nuts and all these, you know, things that an older man acquires in a tool shed. And instead of just cleaning it out, he decided he's going to take that notebook and that pen, and he was going to draw 
every single item that was in there before he got rid of it. Holy cow. He drew hundreds of bolts and screws alone. Jeez. And and they're amazing drawings, amazing drawings. This will all be linked below. Yeah, please. I, I'd love to see that. <laughs> that is, I think it's called the, the Workshed Project, I think, is or the Toolshed Project. Um, and it's all just black and white drawings, um, pen and ink. And that is the epitome of what I mean. I could sit in my room right now, and I could draw every little object that's in this room and have a book of sketches full. Sure. That's art. That's, that's, that's true art. That's, that's looking and absorbing and being alive is part of art. And the more that you divest yourself from that, the more that you separate yourself from that, the harder time it is to be inspired. And I think that that's maybe part of the reason why this book is going so well for me is because I, I'm more present. I'm also happier too. I have less anxiety. So both of the things we're talking about. It's based on a conversation that, that we had with, uh, you know, on that, that running text that we had as well, um, about smiling, um, you know, about being inherently generous as a person. And I feel like I, I did an experiment after we had that conversation. I smiled at, at strangers, not in a creepy way, so no one make that assumption. But, you know, I would just smile at strangers. I would put my phone in my pocket. I, I did this for almost a three day span. Um, you know, whenever I was, when I was alone, I would do the things I needed to on my phone. Um, but whenever I was in a public place where there were people around, I would make it a point to make eye contact with people and smile at strangers. And the amount of people that, that smiled back, um, and how, how much better I felt about my day because of that is, is, is shocking. Um, and it, it inspired me to do a, a lot more, um, not just creatively, but just with my day. I felt like I had more time, that I had more energy, that I had more purpose through my day. And so I feel like that's that's a big part of what we're talking about as well. And for me too, um, I've told you this before, but um, the thing about smiling to me for one of the big things about the smiling all the time is doing it whenever I walk past a mirror, smiling mm -hmm. at myself. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet. For two, two reasons. Number one, the reason that um, when you smile at someone that they smile back, that they feel better, and the reason you feel better when they smile back to you is our mirror neurons. Right, um, we're we're inherently uh, pack animals as humans, so it's it's uh, evolutionary beneficial to us to share emotions. You know, sure. when one when one person is scared, the other person should be scared too, because there's probably a reason. Mm -hmm. And when one, one person's happy, the other person should be happy so that they can share it. Um, so your brain doesn't know the difference between you and the mirror and another person. So when you smile at yourself. You're giving yourself the same benefit you give to somebody else when you smile. You're, mirror, you're, you're firing your mirror neurons. But also, for me, it was this idea of, and this is just something I thought of myself, but like, I think about myself when I picture myself in my head. How do I see myself? Well, if I'm always looking grumpy when I look in the mirror, that's probably how I see myself. Mm -hmm. But if I'm smiling every time I see myself in the mirror, eventually I'm going to replace the picture of myself with a picture of me smiling in my head. And if I see myself like that, then I'm probably going to be a happier person because that's what I see myself as, a happy person. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's playing psychology games with yourself, right? Uh, in, 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 you know, we, we've talked about this um, with, with many things, but I feel like this is one of the, the, the clear 
places where faking it till you make it definitely has a very positive effect in the long run. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, it's, it's about belief, right? Mm-hmm. Be- believe it until you believe it. Because it, it's, it's, emotions are not that concrete. They're so fluid. And going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, you said you were smiling and you felt like you had more time. And there's a weird thing about that. Uh, if anybody's read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, in that book, he talks about this experiment that was done on seminary students. And basically the experiment, I'll, I'll try to keep it very, very brief. There were many groups um, within the experiment. Um, one, one group was asked to read the story of the Good Samaritan. These are, by the way, seminary. These are all people that want to be priests. Um, one was one was asked to read. One group was asked to read the book, story of the Good Samaritan. One was asked to read another story, and then the third group was asked to pick whatever story they want from the Bible. And the purpose of them reading the story is that they were supposed they were told that they were going to have to write their own sermon, and and then present it, um, because like I said, they're learning to be priests, so they need to learn how to do this. And then of those three groups, there were also two other groups. Um, so that one group was told, okay, you're, you're done pretty early. You should probably make your way over to, um, the building where you're going to give the sermon, um, the fake sermon, um, so that you can get there early and, you know, you have, take your time. You'll be calm so you can start. And then the other group, which is made up of all different parts of those other three groups who read the different stories was told, you're late. Hurry. Get over there as quickly as you can. Mm. And the, the real trick here was um, on the steps of the, the place that they're going in to give this, um, this sermon. There was somebody pretending to be uh, hurt or in pain or sick. They're basically groaning on the steps. And they wanted to see how many uh, of these seminary students stopped to help this person and wow. of what group. And so, you know, of course, the idea of the Good Samaritan is the idea of stopping to help someone, right? That's the whole purpose <laughs> sure. of the story. Do you think that the largest group that stopped to help this person were the ones that read that story? No, they weren't. And it wasn't the ones who read the other story. And it wasn't the ones who picked their own story. The group that had the largest percentage that stopped were the ones that were given time. Huh. The ones who were told to rush stopped the least. Well. And it's just that idea of, of what you focus on, going back to that, that what you focus on, is, is, is it defines everything. You can want to be a priest and you can want to help the poor and the sick and whatever, but if you're told you're late, it's going to override all of that. Sure. Or if you're grumpy or you have anxiety, you're not going to make that, you're never going to finish that song. <laughs> you're never going to create as long as you focus on things that are destructive. And I feel like I feel like that that's very true. Um, you know, we talk about anxiety quite a bit, um, just on a personal level. But I feel like that's very true, just in general, for me. Which is, you know, when whenever things are difficult in my life, I always feel like I'm rushing everywhere. Um, I always feel like there's an urgency to everything that I'm doing, regardless of how urgent something might be. It becomes a mindset. You know, everything becomes overly important, and I never take the time to. to to take a step back and to sit down and breathe and, and listen to a good song or, or watch a good movie or watch an episode of a TV show. I never feel like I have time, but I feel like 
I, I feel like more and more these days, I realize how self-imposed that is. You know, the feeling of urgency is something that I instill in myself. I feel like I'm constantly panicked. And, and only until recently did I, I make a choice to just not take... And it's, it's not like I've added anything or taken anything away from my day. I, I still do all of the things that, that I did prior to, to making the choice. I just feel like I'm much, much more at ease um, when I'm not feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm having to rush from place to place or, or, or being urgent. You know, sometimes the smartest thing you can do is to do nothing. You know, the, to take to take a moment to, 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 to calm yourself down and to realize that it really isn't that important. It really isn't. It's going to get done. You're going to do it. But you don't have to assign such a sense of panic or urgency to it in order to make it happen. And that's one of the things that I've been doing a lot recently. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I've talked about this on air before. I've definitely talked to you about this. Um, the first thing I do every day is the most important thing to me. Sure. That's my new thing. Um, so the first thing I do every day, other than um, exor- actually exercises on the top of important things to me right now, uh, exercise, shower, eat. The first task, I guess you could say, I do for the day is I work on my book because that is the number one most important thing to my, me in my life. Mm-hmm. And like you said, everything else will still get done afterwards. But what I found out is those things that you don't want to do, you can still do them when you have almost like no energy. So what difference does it make? Sure. Why should you do them first? Because all it's going to do is sap you from energy and maybe prevent you from doing the thing that you actually want to do. And I understand now why when you read people like Stephen, uh, read you know, on writing by people like Stephen King and they talk about their own processes. Oh, they're so common that a lot of these people wake up at five or six in the morning so that they can work on their novel and then have their day. Sure. Because they do that important thing first. And that's, that's been a huge thing for me. It's taken all of that, that anxiousness out of the day, like you're talking about. Because when I have the thing that matters done to me, I don't feel rushed anymore. I used to feel rushed because I had to get through all this stuff so I could do that thing. But mm-hmm. if I do it first, then I, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of the day. <laughs> and I feel like our entire lives are built the wrong way. Um, because of that, you know, I feel like we're built so that we're, 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 we're psychologically trained to try to get those other things done first before we do the thing that makes us happy because we, we're, we're trying to, to reward ourselves at the end of the day for, for completing the tasks that, that, that we have. And I feel like it's, it's the, the, the older I get, the more I realize how, how backwards that is. You know how completely unproductive that is. Um, you may get things done, but you're going you're ultimately going to be unhappy because when you start on on such an urgent and and almost negative mindset through your day, everything becomes progressively harder. So by the time you get to the the thing that you want to do that will make you happy, you're just panicked. You know, I find that to be true even now. Like even even though I know this, I still find myself falling into that trap. You know, of working so hard throughout the day, getting all of these tasks done, and then coming home and and seeing you know uh, the, the person I, I I love, but feeling just just panicked already, just feeling like I I you know so even even though at the end of the day I want to have this quiet hangout time with with Crystal or, or 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 to read a good book or whatever it may be, I find like I, I I'm I'm not ready to do those things, and I feel like because of the, the reason that that is is because I set up my day wrong, I set it up. I set it up with the wrong things first. So I definitely feel like that's something that, that not only, not only 
I feel like I should incorporate more, but I feel like we should all co- incorporate more. I mean, sure, you have to get the things done that you have to get done, but what what is more important than being happy? You know, I can't I can't think of a thing that is. You know, that whatever it is that that you feel like you need to do. Um, pales in comparison to whether or not you can survive the things that you're doing. And I feel like the, the core priority is to make sure that, that you have a, a stable place to, to, to stand from in order to get those things done in a positive way. I agree. I agree 100% with that. I mean, um, I think that th- there's this mindset of, uh, as, as Tony Robbins says, he says all the time, he says, people always talk about things they have to do. Sure. What about the things you get to do? Mm-hmm. You know, the things that are a privilege. And I, I think that that's, that mindset is, is destructive, especially from a creative standpoint. It is destructive because life becomes something that is being done to us, mm-hmm. not something that we are doing. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of people, um, there's a lot of people who listen to this. Probably all, all the people who listen to this, they work their butt off. Um, they they work their butt off to pay their bills, and they're tired. Their day's so full that this idea of getting up early to do something creative that's important to them first just seems impossible. Well, there's only two things I can say to that. Well, three things. I'll say, number one, if you really feel that way, maybe you aren't an artist. Maybe that's just not your bag. Um, maybe it's something you want to do, but it's not who you are. But I, I think that's very, very, very few of the people. Cause I really think at our heart, all of us are creators. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing I would say to that is if something is really important to you, you really want to do it. You will sacrifice anything to get it done. If your if your children were sick and you didn't have the money to buy them medicine, you would sell your television to get medicine for your children because it is important to you. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I would say about that is you have no idea how much energy doing the thing you want first thing in the day gives you for the rest of that day. You feel exhausted. You start doing the thing that you want now at the beginning of your day, sleep a half hour less or whatever you have to do. When you go to bed at night, you're going to feel different. Sure. You're going to feel like you, you conquered the world in one step that day. You took one step to conquering the world. You're going to go to bed satisfied instead of exhausted. And that's a very different feeling. And that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, and you know, like Lamb, we promised to talk a little bit about tools in this. So I had a question for you. Actually, it's two questions, but they're kind of related. Number one, I know we're talking a lot about time and stuff like that. So I think it would be beneficial maybe for both of us to just talk about what we use to manage our time. Um, and then any other apps that you want to talk about that are important to you creatively? Huh. Um, I can start my... first if you didn't have time to think about yeah, it enough. Yeah, I, I have a little bit, but go ahead. I, I, I want a second to kind of gather my thoughts on that one. Okay. Um, if you have been around long enough that you listen to this show before it was all about creativity, then you probably know I'm a task management app nerd. I've used them all. It's because I can never find, seem to find the perfect thing. And there, obviously there is no perfect machine. Um, I honestly, I'll tell you right now, I think that the best task management app out there from having tried all of them is honestly Todoist. They have the perfect combination of features. Um, it's flexible. 
it, it works for almost everybody out there. That is exactly what you should be using. I don't use it. <laughs> I, I've I've tried um, many times to go through. I've I've used it for a year at a time, and, and it's like I said, it's great. But the problem that I always seem to have is just the initial setup of the apps um, does not work for the way my brain works. As much as I love that app and I want it to work, I don't get a glimpse of things in the way that I need the glimpse. And sometimes that's important when you're talking about tools like this. It's not always about the features. Sometimes it's about finding something that thinks the way you think. And even though I think that Todoist is the best made, they have the, the features set that everything, it's all right. And they're moving in the direction. They're always innovating. They're a great company. Uh, I just can't get over that hump of being able to see my week the way that I need to see my week. And being able to schedule things the way that I need to schedule them, which sometimes can be a little bit anal. Because I'm, for me, I like to schedule things, especially the more I can schedule all the boring stuff and do that, you know, maybe for the next year, have everything scheduled, at least um, the major stuff, the more I can let go and create. So for me, I've been using, uh, I've gone back to OmniFocus. Um, OmniFocus is not cheap, by the way. Um, it's a really well-built app, and it's built on the GTD methodology, if anybody knows what that is. Um but the reason that it works for me is when I go in, I open the app, the first thing I see is the forecast for the week. And it's got a number next to every single day. And every time I open that app, I know how many things I have to do on each of those days. And if I didn't have that constant reminder, I'm not mentally prepared. Mm. Um, it's really important for me, like, for example, on Sunday to open that app. And see, oh, I only have two things scheduled on Wednesday. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to click that Wednesday and see what those two things are. Oh, it's two small things, too. Wednesday's free. So now all of a sudden on Sunday, I know I'm going to work my butt off on the book on Wednesday. And it gives me something to look forward to. It works with my psychology the way that I need it to. Um, and then there's a there's a bunch of stuff you can do with, like, um, like for me, I like to, I'm horrible at remembering to, um, buy vitamins and medicine before I run out. <laughs> so I put that stuff in there too. And what's great <laughs> about that is I can say, you know, after I complete this, which is, you know, whenever I buy this vitamin, there's 200 pills in the bottle. That's one a day. Remind me to buy this 200 days after I complete it. Um, so, you know, if I forget to take it for five days, it's still going to wait until I've, uh, until 200 days after I complete it. Um, I'm not sure if that made sense. But anyways, so that's that's the task management app I use. I don't even bother with a calendar. Um, mm. I, if, if I have an event, I put it in my task manager. I sure. just want to live in one place. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I've, I've been trying to find an ecosystem um, that, that works too as well. I find myself having to... to, to the, the, thing, the thing that bothers me most about my, my mobile device is that I, I can't make it the digital assistant that... Um, I want it to be, and it's not necessarily because the tools aren't there, but it's because, you know, and we talk about this quite a bit, um, either um, on air or off air, which is no one's got it all figured out yet. Um, so there's no one place where, where everything can live, um, where I don't have to jump from folder to folder or from app to app in order to achieve certain things. Um, 
even though it's kind of a battle of attrition for me, I've jumped back into Evernote. And as much as Evernote's features can be frustrating at times because the interface isn't great, I still find that it's the only app that I've got that can seamlessly integrate between my different devices in such a way that my brain works. Um, for example, as a writer, I kind of keep things um, compartmentalized in notebooks and I assemble them later. So it's almost like I'm collecting Legos throughout the world um, without really knowing what the final picture is going to be um, or the final, final, final construction is going to be. Um, and Evernote thus far has given me the best set of tools. Um, Bear is a close second, but there are certain frustrating things about the bare interface that is too specific to writing that makes it difficult for me to add, um, you know, the, add, add things like, like music or images in an intuitive way that works for my brain. So lately I've, I've been diving back into the grudgingly diving back into the Evernote world because it's so far the best set of tools that I've got in order to achieve what I want to, uh, with my creative life. I'll agree on both of those. I think bear is a fantastic app. And in all in all honesty, Bear is what Apple Notes should be. Oh, I agree with that completely. Apple um, Notes, and, I want it to work better, but I can't use it. And we're we're going to have to – I, I want to move through these things before you and I go into the Apple Notes thing because that was one of the topics I want to talk about. Sure. Um, so we'll, we'll go in depth on that in a minute. Um, but, yeah, I dove back into Evernote too, and that will come up in the Apple Notes thing, why I did. Um, and Evernote is – I love – I, they've got a lot of criticism for it, but I love the new mobile app that they just made to the point where I hate using the desktop version of the app. I agree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just it's so useful in the way that it narrows things down with tags now. Mm -hmm. And um, for the first time, tags have become useful for me. I don't do a lot of writing within Evernote specifically. Evernote for me is where, um, you know this, I take notes on, on almost everything um, that I read, whatever, um, whatever I'm watching. That all goes in Evernote. So I'm creating this database of, of uh, information um, because this is, this is where I dip for creativity. So when I pull out, every day I, I go back and I look at what I was doing a year ago, two years ago, uh, three years ago on the same day, and usually something in there will spark something for me. Um, and that, that all happens within Evernote. Uh, but one thing I've never, I wish, I wish I could do task management better in Evernote. I mean, you have the reminders, which is good for one time thing. Um, but what are you using for like your day to day tasks and remembering to do things, you know, like, uh, your recurring tasks and stuff like that? I hate to say it, man, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm using same thing. Grudgingly, I'm using um, reminders and Apple Notes um, just because I haven't found a better solution yet. But that also leads to to my frustration with having to bounce from app to app to app or folder mm -hmm. to folder in order to get things done. I mean, there there are bits and pieces of both of those apps that are phenomenal. You know, Apple Notes does certain things very well, but it, right. but it doesn't do other things at all. <laughs> right. And so, so, so my frustration comes from, I, I'm still using reminders cause I have no other choice or not no other choice, but I haven't found something better than it yet. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wish, I wish somehow that, 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 that all of the features of reminders and Apple notes could be integrated into one app. Um, and, and integrating, you know, certain calendar features and things like that as well would make it such a useful tool for me. But right now right. having to bounce back and forth between the two is just monumentally frustrating. <laughs> and 
for those who don't know, one of the my most recent changes before I went to OmniFocus, I was like I said, I was on Todoist before, but in the meantime, for about I don't know, like two or three weeks, I went back to Apple Reminders too. I wanted to be able to use Siri um, and just capture stuff. And I figured, you know, like I don't need all this other, all these other features. I don't need that. I tried to be as minimal as possible. Well, it turns out I'm more of a power user than I want to be. Um, there's just some things I couldn't. The problem for me with with Apple Reminders was once, um, and this is actually we'll we'll move this into the Apple Notes section too, because well. I also <laughs> did I did I did an experiment of um, Lamb knows this. I did almost a month um, moving to Apple Notes and using that for all the things that I use to see if I could make it work. And the problem that I had with both of them is they aren't made for me, in 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 the sense that they're made for the the average user and they work spectacularly. Um, there's very few problems with those apps, very few glitches. Um, it's underappreciated how solid both of those apps are and in their own way elegant, um, though Reminders is less elegant than um, Notes is to me. Um, but the problem is is they're not meant for heavy use. Sure. So, for for example, what I mean by that is in Reminders, Reminders works great until you get over like six reminders in one list. And then it's just because you can't sort them, they don't sort by date. At a certain point, I mean, like if I put like I I have all reminders for all of my bills to make sure that I pay my bills, you know, four or five days before they're due. Um, Well, when you have like 20 bills and Apple reminders won't let you sort by date, Try going in there every week and make sure that you know what you're going to have to pay for the week because sure. they're all in whatever order they want. They want to be in. And, you, yeah, you can move them manually, but are you really going to sort those every day? No. You know, so once you get over, like, six reminders in a list, it's completely useless because it's unwieldy. And uh, not to mention when you're dealing with things that you want to get done, um, not even the stuff you have to get done. And I found the same problem with Apple Notes is Apple Notes is great as long as it's a note. Once it became, once you start putting paragraphs and paragraphs of stuff in there, it's useless. There's no way to, there's no way to create a line to separate sections. Um, you can't color text. Everything is black. That's it. That's all you get. Um, all you can do is put spaces between paragraphs. But if you're putting quotations in from a book, and the quotation is two paragraphs, how are you supposed to differentiate to yourself that this quote is one quote just separated into two paragraphs, and the one under it is a quote that's only one paragraph? Instead, it just looks like three paragraphs of quotes. You know, either one big quote that's three paragraphs long or three one-paragraph quotes. So it's just it's not user-friendly in the sense that I use it as a database. It just can't can't do that. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you and I have gone back and forth about this in our own personal conversations for a while, which is, I just want, and and, and I, I don't think it will ever reach that, that level for either of us, because the majority of users who will use it do not need it on that level. Um, and I feel like until, until users, more users than, than the 10% that, it, that, that are you and I, um, want that complex feature set, it's just not going to happen. And this is, this is my big problem with Apple. Um, 
is they seem very blind to one very specific fact. It is possible to make an app that is both simple and complex at the same time that adapts to the user's need. Instead, they always opt for the simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and an example of that is a perfect example of why I always um, rave on this app is Todoist. Todoist can be the most simple app that you need it to be. It can be exactly like Apple Reminders. I have a list here for work. These are my tasks for work. I put dates on them. That's all I use it for. Or you can create 15 uh, folders on the left with subfolders and subfolders before that. And then your tasks within your tasks have subtasks and they can link to each other and you can <laughs> save templates and you can create filters and you can tag the, sh- the, the living daylights out of it. it. It gets as complex as you want it to get. And that's why I will always say that that is my, the task app that I'm going to recommend to almost everybody because chances are you fit in, in that 99% of users that they cover. Sure. <laughs> and, and that's what I, what baffles me about Apple is they have all these amazing engineers and designers, but they're not allowed to figure out how to do that. Like, for example, why, you know, iMovie and, and, uh, what the heck is it called? Final Cut? Mm-hmm. Um, they should be the same app. They shouldn't sure. be two different apps. They should be the same exact app. But you should go in to the menu and click a button that says advanced mode. Boom. It brings up all the other menus. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's in advanced mode. So you can do all the advanced stuff because sometimes even people who need advanced features want to go into an app and just have the easy and the quick. Sure. You know, sometimes you just need the basic iMovie features. Cool. I'm just making something for Instagram. I don't need all those other menus in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and until they figure that out, they're going to have that problem of, you know, this is the same problem they're having with their laptops right now. Everybody's like, this is a pro laptop. And it's, I mean, like the MacBook Pro, to anybody who's actually a professional, I hate to say it, it's a joke. Yeah. It's not, it's not powerful enough to do what 90% of pros need it to do. I, I know two of our friends who are pros, uh, Brandon and, and Matt, both moved to Windows computers. Yeah. Because the, I mean, like Brandon was saying, his even though I hate Windows with a passion, um, it's it's a fact that Brandon was saying like his computer he just put together, his Windows computer he put together, is four times faster than his iMac. Yeah, yeah, and for and, half the price too. <laughs> and he does motion graphics, so that power is the difference between you know like a what eight hour render time and an hour render time. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just I mean and. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't think that Apple is required to make things for pros. They, they can make whatever they want. But when you start slapping the label pro on there, people are going to get pissed. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's, that's, I, I, and I don't know why they, they backed away from that. You know, I, I remember, um, pretty much from the late nineties all the way through to the, um, you know, late two thousands, um, Apple was very pro-centric in the sense that they made um, both apps as well as as machines that were very very catered to a power user. Um, but lately, that that priority has changed, and maybe it's because they're trying to reach a broader consumer market. But the problem is that they made 
I, I, they're, 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 they're cutting themselves out of such an important part of what made them what they were, which is the ability to give a, a certain level of power user um, enough power and control to do the things that they wanted to do. It's like having a pencil that, that, that you know, you can't sharpen um, past a certain point um, if you want fine detail. And I, th- I feel like that's, that's what Apple's headed towards now is they're trying to make a pencil that everyone can use um, and not a mm-hmm. pencil that, that can be sharpened to a point where certain users can take full advantage of what it's capable of. I think, yeah, what they're doing is they're minimizing their focus. And it's understandable as a company why you would do Yeah, that. I get it. I understand, um, yeah. It, it's best exemplified in their commercials. You remember before the, the famous iTunes commercials? Um, you know, yeah. with the silhouetted dancer and the head, the white headphones coming down. Um, it was always like these indie bands. Like nobody had ever heard of like the, um, I think it was like the Fratellos um, was one of them. Uh, it was all these the, these songs and they, they kind of made these bands for a minute. But they would always find these niche indie bands. And then all of a sudden they started having events where, you know, U2's playing. And uh, uh, Pharrell's coming out. And Sia's, Sia's singing. And it was a transition from being a niche market into being the mainstream. Sure. And that's exactly what they're doing with the, with their with their apps. Before they focused on the creatives, mm-hmm. um, not apps. I'm sorry, but well, apps maybe too. But apps too, with, yeah, to a certain point. Yeah. With mm-hmm. with with their with their everything, we'll say um, they were focused on creatives because creatives were were a niche. Because Microsoft was always focused, um, especially when Bill Gates was in charge, was always focused towards business. They wanted businessmen, and they wanted businesses, and they wanted enterprise. So Apple said, well, how can we survive? Oh, we'll pay attention to the creatives. You know, what was that, the famous um, the famous Apple commercial? This is for the, the, the people who think differently, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, that's the market they were going for. Well, that's not the market they need anymore. Sure. So they – and I, I understand it, but at the same time, I think as a company, it's possible to do both. Well, I feel like in the long run, it hurts them more than it helps them because the niche was so strong. You know, the, the you know, for people, for people we knew and loved, for example, all the creative friends that we have, um, I can't think of any of them that worked, um, on anything other than a Mac for a good decade. And now that's right. starting to change. Like you said with Brandon, for example, it's, it's shocking to see him, him, him build a PC. It was, it was weird to see, to see a Windows machine sitting on his desk. And, and from that perspective, I think it's, it's really, it's really sad. Um, not necessarily because I hold on to some weird heyday or something like that, but I feel like there's a certain part of, of, of the, the Apple ecosystem that made it very functional for creatives. And I feel like so much of that has been lost in, in an effort to chase consumers. Um, and I feel like the, 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 the dumbing down of the OS as well as a bunch of the other apps that made, um, the, 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 the Mac OS such a, a useful platform for creatives is just inherently lost. I think the one place that, um, they maintain a hold on creatives, or I shouldn't say maintain a hold on creatives, but the one place, um, where there's still innovation to be done with the creatives is with the iPads. Sure. Um, that, uh, that pencil, even though, yeah, everybody always says Steve Jobs didn't want a pencil or a stylus, uh, it's amazing. And somebody who owns a Surface Pro, I can tell you right now, you remember this. This was actually the uh, beginning days of this podcast in the old format. I told you I couldn't stand the new iPads. Yeah, now <laughs> I remember that. If I could go back in time, I would not buy the Surface Pro and I would have got the iPad. Sure. Um, 
not because the pen doesn't work well or not because the screen or the hardware on this thing. It's because working with Windows in a touch interface is not a dream. There's enough problems with Windows already as it is. Um, but when you put the touch interface and a, and software that wasn't made for touch interface and for 90% of it, it's well, it, it's, it's a round, phrase I go back to. It's an obstacle. Yeah, it's it's a round peg in a square hole. Um, right. And 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 trying to shoehorn in in an in, in interface into a backbone that was not inherently made for it. So that's difficult on many levels. I and you and I have had many conversations uh, in the older versions of the podcast about how frustrating Windows was. Um, not only that, but how frustrating it was that every time they came out with an update, they seemed to break things. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so, like so right Windows, now. actually Windows, when it, when they first released the first version of it was okay. Um, and then it just got progressively worse. Yeah. That's the funny thing. A year ago when I bought it, Windows, I was, I, I'm the one that told you, I'm like, Hey, the new Windows is pretty good. Yeah. I remember that. And even with the touch interface, like I, I don't know how they lost this, but a year ago. So this is, this, this amazed me. I got the surface pro. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a tablet. Um, so I had the pen in my hand, but then you have a keyboard that plugs in. Plus, you know, you can bring up the on-screen keyboard with your fingers and stuff like that. Well, when I first started using it, it knew what implement I was using. So when I touched, you know, if I went into a search field with my finger it, and I didn't have the keyboard plugged in, it brought up the on-screen keyboard. Okay, that's not that fantastic, right? Well, how about this? Well, I'm holding my pen. And I and I click into that field with the pen, it would bring up the handwriting thing. So I could search things in my, you know, I could search Google or Bing or whatever using the pencil, using handwriting, because it knew, oh, you're touching this with the pen. You don't want the keyboard. You want the handwriting thing. Mm-hmm. Well, a year later, guess what? It doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> it has no idea what I touch it with. It gives me the keyboard every time. And... and it's I don't want to I don't want to rip on Windows for too long but my my point here is when you're picking up a device for creativity if you have to fight it then it's it's an obstacle that you don't need yeah and it goes back to what we the thread that we have pretty much running through this entire episode which is um, the more obstacles you have to, to things, like, I mean, you can say negativity is an obstacle in the same sense. The more, the more, the more you have to do to get to the thing that you want to do, the less likely it is that you'll do that thing or do it well. <laughs> so I feel like, Absolutely. I feel like that's, that's very, very true in this case too, is the more I have to fumble with my phone and try to figure out, uh, my, my laptop or figure out my devices or just, just even get to a screen where I can sit down and comfortably do something creative. The more, the more obstacles I have to that, the less likely it is that I w- will be, will be doing it well by the time I get there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that said, let's, let's focus on the positive here. Lamb, right now, as of today, what are your, I won't give you a number. What are your top creative apps or devices that are working for you that do what you need them to do that you could recommend to the, to the listeners. Oh, um, the best one. I, and I, I just recently shared this one with you too, as well. Um, over, uh, for anyone who, who, who hasn't seen it is one of the best, 
um, text overlay and graphical design tools that I've used on, on a mobile device in a long time. Um, so go check out Over. It's a very, very good app, very, very easy to use, and has the, the, the thing that both Chad and I talk about quite a bit, which is it can be as simple as you want or as complicated as you want. It just depends on how how much you want it to do. And the, the jump over from simple to very complex is very intuitive and, and, and really useful. So that, for me, is the number one app that I'm using right now. And any others you want to throw out? A few, I mean, of course, there's always the, the Evernote. Um, I, I'm still trying to... to, to to, I'm, I'm still trying to decide whether or not I want to decide <laughs> um, it, 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 whether it's a good app or not. But I mean, it's, you know what it is. It's the friend that never lets you down, but isn't very exciting. So for me, I, I, I'm, I wish I could give it some more, some more love. Um, the other one actually that I've been using that is, I kind of discovered by accident while doing other things is a, an app that I use to read news called Flipboard. Um, hmm. It's a really, really good app um, for for digesting um, news because it allows you to compartmentalize your news. Um, but it it also does a very, very good job of giving me a usable feed for creative things as well. Um, so you know, I can I can create specific flipboards for certain types of artwork, like photojournalism or or um, you know um, songwriting or whatever it may be. And it does a very good job of filtering the news from that specific. Uh, type of medium that I'm looking for. So Flipboard has also been a very good um, source of inspiration for me lately as well. Um, let's see. For me right now, I would say, since I'm focused on the book, I'll actually I'll, I'll give you guys three things. These are going to be, by the way, um, before I say these, I mentioned this in the last episode. Go to medium.com forward slash random dash badassery. Follow our publication. Because we're going to be putting out a monthly newsletter, and in that newsletter there will be different recommendations than what we're giving now. Um, it could be movies. It could be books. It's just going to be three things from each of us that we're into for that month. Um, so that out of the way, the things that I'm going to tell you right now are what I'm using to write the book. Um, it's, it's going to be three recommendations completely unrelated to the newsletter to come. Number one, what I, I do almost all of my scene writing um, within Scrivener, Scrivener is oh yeah, considered you know by by many to be one of the greatest um, apps for writing novels because the the tool set it's it's overwhelming at first. Um, you kind of have to go through a lot of videos to learn how to use some of it. Um, it doesn't do the you know going back to what we were saying about uh, adjusting from difficult to easy. It doesn't do the easy. So well, there's definitely a learning curve, but there is not a single tool on the market that compares with it. In and now that they have an iOS version, it's even better. Um, even though I don't have an iPad to use it on yet, when I have one, because I will be transitioning to an iPad um, for my main computer, it will be fantastic. Um, so I do most of my scene writing on there because the scenes change so much that it's just smart to have it on there. Um, I don't do handwritten scenes very often just because I hate typing them after I've written them. <laughs> um, but then what, what I do use digitally to save paper um, after that is you can – so once Scrivener allows you to compile drafts. So you can compile a chapter. You can compile um, 
you know, a couple of chapters, you select what you want to compile. I compile it into a PDF and I, then I open it inside of PDF expert. Um, mm. and PDF expert is just, it's a PDF program, but what I can do is I can go in with a red pen and mark up all the things that would mark up like it was printed out on paper. And then I can go back into Scrivener and make all my fixes. And then I can print it back to PDF and keep doing my editing that way. And instead of doing what I did this time, because I didn't have a way, I hadn't figured out the PDF thing yet, which was printing 77 pages. This book's only going to get longer. And that's a lot of paper wasted just to do some editing. Um, but the thing that I do use for paper, which will be my third recommendation, is I use Leuchtstrom 1917. I'm not going to try to spell that for you right now. It's going to be in the show <laughs> notes. They are notebooks. They are like moleskins or moleskinies if you prefer. Um, but the two features, other than the fact that they have better paper, the two features that make it very useful to me is they have numbered pages and they have an index in the front. Now you say, what use is that? Okay, so like I said, I do the scene writing in Scrivener. I do the editing in a PDF, um, PDF expert. In there is where all the ideas and all the working things out go inside that notebook. So when I'm asking questions to myself about this character, when I'm working out details of this character, when I'm sketching out what a room looks like so that I can picture it to describe it, all of that goes into that notebook. And then because there's page numbers, I can take those page numbers and put them in an index so that later when I need to go to refer to that stuff, I can find it. So, you know, if I, on page 57 and page 87 and page 103, I all have, I have all of notes about my main character's mother. Well, I put her name in the beginning of the index and I put those three page numbers and I know that if I need to find information about her, it's going to be on one of those three pages. Wow, that's really cool actually. Huh. It's fantastic. It's, I mean, I, I call the Leuchtturms like basically the computer of notebooks. Yeah, that's um, amazing. They're very, they're very nice notebooks. They're very well made. Um, I've used every size of them. I prefer the medium size. Um, and they come in some cool colors, like, which is silly. You would think that the color thing, but when you're working on a project and you can get a color to represent that project, there's some psychological benefit to that. Like I just ordered a new one for this book and I got this beautiful, rich navy blue one and it feels, it, it feels like it captures the mood of this book. So those, sure. that's my, that's my basic process for writing this book right now is those three things. That's my recommendation. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share, Lam? Um, I guess, uh, you know, given that we're, it, it, it's not just about us creating, but it's also about what inspires us. I wanted to, um, ask for your one recommendation of a piece of artwork or music or, or film or whatever it is that you feel like everyone who, who listens to the show would benefit from consuming. Um, can you go ahead? Cause I need to search for what it's called. Sure, sure, sure. Um, for me, um, it goes along the lines of what the next episode is going to be about, uh, which is Mr. Neil Gaiman and, uh, the, the amazing artist that is Dave McKeon. Uh, it's the tragical comedy or comical tragedy of Mr. Punch. Uh, it's one of the coolest things. It's one of the ones that I've held on to from, from, you know, I've, I've had a copy of it for more than 20 years of my life. So, it's it's something that I definitely recommend everyone going out and checking out. It is a pretty remarkable piece of artwork. And mine is a actually I was in a in the recycle bookstore in Campbell, 
and I was just kind of wandering around and I picked up this Ansel Adams book and it's mostly his um, letters and journals, but um, his photos interspersed within there. And just the format of it just it really inspired me. It's just like little short form things. Um, it made me want to make a book like that. And What's the, the book, name of it? Uh, I thought I wrote it down, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is. It's called uh, Letters and Images, 1916 to 1984. Um, once again, this will all be in the show notes. Just go check some of this stuff out, guys. Um, I like Lamb, what's Lamb just recommended, I've never even heard of. So I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, anything else you want to say, Lamb, before we go? Um, no, I guess that's it. I mean, keep creating and uh, keep finding what inspires you. And don't forget to share that with us as well. Um, from an Instagram perspective, since I'm, I'm, I'm 90% of the time on the Instagram, um, if you find anything that's really, really cool, tag us in it. Um, at, at the very least, if you produce something cool, uh, use the hashtag random badassery and that will, that will get back to us as well. So, um, whether you're creating or you find something amazing that in the creative world, please, uh, feel free to share it with us so we can share it with everybody else. Definitely. And besides remembering that, um, hashtag remember at random badassery, all one word, both on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I will mention the medium. Go to medium.com forward slash random dash badassery. Follow the publication. Check out the newsletters. And in any of these places, even, even on randombadassery.com, which is, which links to, um, randombadassery.fireside.fm, there's so many things I'm throwing at you right now. And this is always in the show notes, all of this stuff. Um, even on our website where the episodes are live, um, if you're not listening to this in a podcast app, um, the, the episodes can be listened to right in the web there. You don't even have to subscribe. You can just go there every two weeks and listen to the episode. And on the bottom there, be underneath each episode, is the ability to leave comments. So if you don't want to tweet us and you don't want to email lamb at info at randombadassery.com and you don't want to send a message on Instagram <laughs> and you don't want to comment on, <laughs> uh, on something on Medium and you don't want to reply to our newsletters, you can... Talk to us there. We're available in very many places. <laughs> um, I, I want to hear from you guys. What do you think of these in-between episodes? Is there any stuff that we covered that um, you want to hear more of? Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to hear about? Um, is there anything that we touched on that you wish we would have gone into more? Um, the more feedback we got on these, this, this more than anything, these episodes, these um, middle-of-the-month episodes, is open to change and growth um, because the other ones revolve around the artists that we're studying, but these ones are about just anything. Um, and once again, I said this in the last episode, questions. We're always open to questions. And if you have questions that you want us to answer on the show, send us a message to one of the many places that I listed, and we will talk about it in these middle episodes. We will go into it. And as you can tell, these episodes are even longer than the other ones because we have so much to talk about. So... <laughs> We, we could go on by ourselves, but uh, we, we want you to be part of it, too. So, Lamb, I'm going to let you close this one out. Wow. Um, way to put me on the spot on that one. Um, I guess for, <laughs> you know, with, with the, 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 the coming of, of, of the next episode, uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to challenge everybody to, to go out there and find us some cool stuff. 
Um, you know, not only will we talk about it in these in-between episodes, but now that you know what the subject is for the next episode, um, if you have any specific things you want us to cover when it comes to Neil Gaiman, um, please send us um, your questions or topic ideas or anything like that, and we will definitely find our way towards those. Um, I'm sure, you know, between Chad and I, we'll, we'll find uh, maybe 20% of, of what he's done um, and and talk about maybe 10% of his life. So if there's anything specific or wonderful or amazing or, or curious about his life that you want us to cover, please do that. Um, other than that, um, you know, thank you everyone for listening and stay with us. Things are only going to get bigger, brighter, and better. Ow!